Hey everybody, this is Eric Mueller, the host of The Eric Mueller Show. You're tuned into the podcast that explores what makes any successful person's inner clock tick by unlocking the most impactful tools within their success portfolio. I'm joined today by Riggs Eckleberry, a tech pioneer dedicated to revolutionizing the trillion-dollar water industry and the founding CEO of Origin Clear. Let's head on over to the interview. Riggs, welcome to the show. Thank you, Eric. It's a great pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you on. And Riggs, before we dive deep into this entrepreneurial story of yours and really your expertise regarding disruption in the water industry, we want to know what makes up your success portfolio. So if you're new to this show, a quick background on it, a way to view it is to think of an investment portfolio, maybe your 401k or some type of stock portfolio you have. It's that compilation of assets that lays that foundation for financial goals. Well, here on the Eric Mueller Show, I want to discover how successful people like Riggs invest in themselves and really build that foundation for their success. So Riggs, start us off here. What are some skills or traits, habits or mindsets that make up that success portfolio for you? Well, thank you, Eric. The, the main thing is, is uh, appetite for risk is key, right? Um, these days, there's so much clutter, there's so, you know, let's say you, I'm going to start an Amazon business. Well, that's already such a cluttered space that you're going to have to do something really innovative. Um, and the other super important thing is apprenticing, learning to know the space, right? Where I've made mistakes, like, you know, I believe in in creative, making mistakes creatively, you know, uh, you know, fail early, fail often, but know the underlying business you're in. I think that's key. Then you can experiment. If, if you just go, well, okay, I'm just going to start, you know, messing around. Um, you waste a lot of time and energy and you'll, 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 you know, get losses at what you're doing. So, um, so that's really the, the number one thing that, um, over time that I, that I got, which was this, this, um, knowledge of how markets tick of how to make change happen. And I must say it was an incredibly eclectic journey. I, it made no sense until I got here. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of weird how that that works sometimes, right? You look back and and then think, what what are the steps that maybe could have happened to 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 diverge you down a different path? But do you believe that you that you end up kind of where you're meant to be as a whole? I mean, do you kind of believe in somewhat of a of a destiny per se that you were always meant to be where you are now, or do you or do you think you have made very deliberate choices that that led you to that path? Well, our choices, of course, um, you know, the <clears throat> judgment really is. Uh, an instant decision based on the widest possible factors, right? From self to family, uh, corporation on, on, on out. And the more embraceive it is, the more successful it is. Um, I remember when, uh, I, I was in on the, uh, the really the, the, um, the fall of a, a great company called Quarterdeck back in the day. And one of the technologies they had was it was the technology that ended up becoming WebEx. And um, at the time, I was in there as the head of strategic marketing, which was no strategy, so it was really interesting. But anyway, it was uh, I was running strategic marketing, and um, Super Ayer, who was the um, he was doing business development there. He says, "Riggs, I've been given the choice of anything I want." As this company falls apart, what should I get? I said, 
I said, get this technology. This is going to be hot. Well, he did. And of course, it became WebEx. And here's what's ironic is that fast forward about a year, I'm sort of, I'm I'm in a consultancy and I'm helping Subra build his company and so forth. And um, at the time, it was branded Active Touch. That's a little little uh, uh, piece of trivia. I think to this day, the server is called Active Touch. But anyway, and at the same time, I had a brand new baby and I was super fixated on a secure paycheck, right? Like, okay, got to make sure that I, you know, raise the kid. And um, and so he was like, hey, come on up to Sunnyvale. We might do something. And then somebody else said, hey, Riggs, we're going to do. And the, the other guy was just so peremptory. He was like, yeah, this is going to happen. And it worked out fine. Um, it, 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 I ended up um, moving to Clearwater, Florida for a year, which is where I'm again now. And, uh, and then that led to migrating to Boulder for another startup. And I had a lot of fun. But, you know, what WebEx, you know, jumping into WebEx could have made a serious difference for my financial portfolio. But I, I just don't think that I was ready. I think that's really the key. I, um, I had been an entrepreneur my whole life, and uh, I ended up in this corporation, Quarterdeck, which is a public company, um, in 1995. And I just wasn't corporate. I wasn't corporate and it took me a solid 10 years to get there. And today I'd be like, yeah, okay, I get it. You know, I know what to do. So I think it's important. So I, I don't see it as, as a loss. Um, well, it's, they say that your greatest expense is the money you didn't make. Okay, fine. I, I did. I had a huge expense there, but you know, it just as easy could have not worked out. I could have just, you know, not really acclimated well, uh, I did not know the corporate game, which has um, caused a lot of friction inside Quarterdeck. I was, <laughs> I was definitely the outsider there. So um, as a result, I think it did work out for the best. The important thing is, as long as you just pursue what you believe you love and you really are intent about, things will work out. Yeah, and I think it it also brings me to think really about like what it, what is success or what do you define that to be? So obviously looking back, you know, had you made a different choice or you know maybe had that that monetary windfall that that could have been looked at as successful and based on a metric, you know, you had X amount of dollars, but maybe that could have led to an additional aspect that would not lead to happiness or success for you. So it could be a little bit difficult looking back on your life and those of you listening, I mean, I'm sure you can think of moments where you could think, oh, had I done this, I wish I would have done that. I have, I have several of those too, where it's like you think of where you might be, but it does, like you just shared, Riz, it, it, it does work out if you're you know, pursuing something that you are at least passionate about or, or you feel is going to bring you fulfillment. But I would ask you, what, what, what would you define success to be right now? And how has that definition changed for you over time, if at all? Well, I think success is being in a position to make the maximum amount of change happen within your capabilities, right? I, th I think that's really success. Um, you know, many an entrepreneur ends up being successful and there he is, got the big house and okay, now what? You know, so I think um, a sense of mission is uh, super important that you can achieve. It's very important to to know what you're capable of. Um, now, I tend to be overambitious. I tend to bite off more than I can chew. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Uh, it does mean you're going to have to do a lot of backfilling, 
like, whoops, uh, I better get up to speed on this fast, uh, raise some money fast, get a team fast. Um, but that's just because I get bored easily. And that's kind of how it is. Yeah. And, and another piece that I think is interesting, and you mentioned maybe a little bit about this pre-interview, but mistake-based marketing. So a process that you've spent decades refining this process of how to do and learn things. Would you share with us what that, what that means, what that term means? And also how might it be different than just like failing with style or failing, you know, without any, any end goal in mind? Right. That's, that's a really good, um, you know, uh, distinction because when I went and spent that year in Clearwater working for a great man, Mike Sarek, who, who had a call center and we were trying to create products for that call centers to sell. And I would literally put up a product because this was the, we had websites by then. It was 1996, 97, we had websites. <laughs> and so I'd put up a website and da 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 And then I'd ah, tear it down. And he'd look at me like, Riggs, you just created a whole product line and then just disappeared it. I'm like, yeah, it's not going to work. And he was kind of blown away, but um, it, it, that was the beginning of this idea of mistake-based marketing. And um, it especially got acute after the year 2000 because up to the year 2000, we had budgets to do market surveys. After 2000, we didn't. Like, no, we're not going to do any $30,000 for a a survey project. No, I don't think so. And so the only possible survey was just try it out, right? And since we, it's an electronic world, it was, it was became super feasible. So um, now where I refined it was, for example, later on, I was um, brought in to help yellowpages.com eventually get an exit. And I, <clears throat> I had to reinvent how they were selling. Well, what, what, what I realized after I was there for a while um, was the people on the floor were very good salespeople, but they didn't have product. And so again, okay, fine, let's come up with new products, skyscraper ads and this and that, boom, 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 boom. And now they had things to sell and that things took off. Then I did a project where I went, okay, every one of these merchants in Yellow Pages, they need a website. And that was back then, this is now 2002, and they don't have, most of them didn't, still didn't have a website, e-commerce site. So why don't we have a little Java mini site once you when you look at a, a, a merchant, boop, a little mini website pops up and you can transact with them. You can call them. You can do this, that, other thing. And we developed it into uh, a thing. And right then, in the, and that was part of what got us sold to the Bell South Consortium that bought yellowpages.com. Well, it never happened because this is the thing about about mergers and acquisitions, they're highly destructive. The people who are buying you, they generally don't care about what you've got unless it's in revenue or customer base. The rest, eh, you know, technology, whatever. And so I clearly remember presenting this really cool prototype of a mini website for yellowpages.com to an audience that was like, yeah, whatever. Ah, we just do. We just want the listings. It's called Yellow Pages. We just want electronic version of the yellow book. That's it. You know, they wanted to keep it simple. And um, and that's that's the the other big factor is selling your vision is ultra critical. When I was still at Quarterdeck, we had a wonderful product called Web Compass. And Web Compass was a meta search tool. It it could search every search engine. And back then we had a number of them. Um 
it was not as consolidated as it is today, but um, so it would crawl every single search engine in real time and return these super natural language results. It was amazing. And I was like, and it was being sold for $120 a, a piece by a call center. And I'm like, um, this is not a utility. This this needs to be free. And and I pitched it to the board of directors of Quarterdeck, and they were like, well, we, that sounds like an that sounds like an OEM deal. We don't we don't like OEM deals. I'm like, no, it's to get eyeballs. And anyway, I I did not it didn't it didn't work. I didn't I was not able to convince them, and Web Compass faded away. So, key lesson there is is really, you know, getting internal sales, especially a corporation, are critical. Now. There is a factor that is inevitable in, 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 in corporations that have existing product lines, which Clayton Christensen wrote about in a book called The Innovator's Dilemma, wonderful book, where he says, look, uh, and he tracks, one of the industries he tracked was the disk drive industry, which went from 28-inch 20 20 platters, 14-inch, 7-inch, 3.5-inch, all the way down to a little chip. Now, every single stage destroyed the previous company. And that's because the sales model for 28-inch platters was, you know, I don't know, $80,000 a platter or whatever it was, right? And there was no way they were going to cut their price to $18,000 for this newfangled thing. It was going to destroy all their sales. And so they could not. And so literally the technologies were developed in those legacy companies. The engineers that developed it went and created a new company that destroyed the old one. And this happened again and again and again and again. Right. So no amount of selling, those engineers could not have sold it. It's like, no, no way. We're not departing from our successful business. We're, we're sticking with our model um, because it works. It works. Obviously, it works. Yeah. Okay. But you're driving into a wall. Right. Um, Technology is a hell of a thing. Um, again, going back to Quarterdeck, uh, there I was strategic marketer, and there was something called a memory manager at the time. 286 computers, these um, old um, pre-Windows operating systems, they had a 640K memory limit. And if you needed to do more than that, you had to have a memory manager. And the preeminent one was QEMM, Quarterdeck Expanded Memory Manager. It was a huge tentpole for the company. And I went over to, I saw, you know, I had just made my bones by marketing a one of the first Windows 95 applications, Clean Sweep, and, and now I'm in strategic marketing. I walk over to the head of sales and I say, dude, QEMM is falling off a cliff. You realize that, right? Because it, it's the world is moving over to Windows 95, just so you know. It's a 32-bit operating system. That memory issue goes away. He was like, I don't think so. Again, you've got to predict trends. Now, what's wild is even though these things become obsolete and they hit the wall, they still have a life. A good friend of mine has a product called Disk Keeper, which defragments disks. Well, it still sells to this day, even though it's become more and more obsolete. Why? Because of installed bases. So, you know, it's important to remember that that does, does exist. But I, I'm interested in the new stuff. That's what gets me excited, not marketing legacy stuff and, and milking the last dollars out of it, right? Yeah, and that, that kind of leads into what maybe you're doing now at, at Origin Clear. So it sounds like, I mean, you've shared, you know, some of your some of your experience and the background you've had, which is also, you know, a pretty varied career, which I would assume 
makes you feel you know pretty qualified to be a CEO of a company such as Origin Clear, which you also helped found the company that that became what it is now. What what really is the vision behind Origin Clear, and how is it you know trying to disrupt the water industry, which Honestly, I don't know a ton about the inner workings of the water industry, so maybe maybe even shed some light on on really how it works. And it, it sounds like an industry that maybe is a little bit adverse to change. Yes, and I'll get into that. But uh, to, speaking to your your thing about background, um, the problem with there, there's a shortage of CEOs. Um, there was during the during the dot com era, I think there was. Uh, 180 open CEO recs in Silicon Valley. I didn't give a moment. It was a uh, tremendous. Why? Well, um, my ability to be a CEO really came from my, I, I was a ship captain back in the day in the 70s. I was actually captaining uh, large ships, merchant ships and so forth. A job for which, again, becoming a ship captain, there's no real apprenticeship. One day you're it. You're like, okay, hard left rudder. That happened, right? So, yeah. And, but you also, so yeah. What you say magically happens. Make it so first, right? But you, it's like I don't know what's going to happen next, and so it's a really tough school. No amount of apprenticeship at lower levels or being a first mate or whatever prepares you for that, and so you have to. Um, and then later, having been a captain already, I then was a first mate for a while and I was able to be a very good first mate again because I'd been a captain I could could anticipate what the captain needed. So um what I'm trying to say here is these are jobs that you just have to accumulate a lot of eclectic background for before you, so you'll be able to adapt because there's no there's no school there's no CEO school out there. Okay. So I was happily um taking a company public in 2006 called Cyber Defender. We got it onto the Nasdaq. I was I was the number two, so I was the chief operating officer and president. And like all number twos, I thought I could be a better number one. I mean, that's the standard, right? So I called up these um, fund managers that I know. And I said, you know, I'd like to. I think I could be a CEO. And they go, Riggs, I th we think so too, but we're not going. We're not doing high tech. We we're shifting over into green, and you can be a CEO, but you we want you to do an algae to biofuels startup. Okay, sure. Why not? Um, fortunately, I have a brilliant inventor brother, Nicholas, who happened to have a patent that would apply, um, uh, a patent for oxygenating the algae, helping to grow it, whatever. And so we launched this company and it was Origin Oil. Now, the fund I was working with, what they like to do is take you public immediately and then raise money in the public space as opposed to lengthy uh, rounds A through G and then go public, right? Um, two different philosophies, and they if you do one, you're poisoned for the other. It's over. Like from day one, when I went public, VCs didn't want to talk to me. And it was probably a good thing because I'm VCs try to control you with that monthly meeting, and I'm not good about that. But anyway, um, so so I, I, we started this thing, and it was so much fun um pushing this algae to biofuels idea. Um, but that unfortunately hit a wall in 2014 when fracking really took over the market and the price of oil crashed so low that we were multiples too expensive to compete with fossil fuels. We just, it just, algae became, as I like to say, a science experiment. 
at that point, we're like, okay, um, failure is not an option. We're not going to just shut down. Uh, and I don't want to become an algae supplement company. So what do we do? And tech we had at the time for algae extraction could be adapted to sewage extraction. So we went blithely into the water industry. Well, in algae, I had been a media darling. You know, Stuart Varney had called me algae man. I'll call you algae man. You know, I was on uh, CNBC. I was on all these major networks because it was a who, who knew like, whoa, that's interesting. It was one of those unusual things. Water? Eh, whatever, right? And um, because people like, in fact, one of my fund managers said, I don't get it, Riggs. I flush the toilet, the water goes away. I turn on the faucet, the water comes in. What's the big deal? Like, but it's all falling apart. And that's the fact is that um, I became quickly aware that our water infrastructure is very sick. It's in deep trouble. And it's being underlined by these little canary and coal mine events like Flint, Michigan, and so forth. But there's much more happening that is just not being talked about. For example, uh, you can go to a tap water database called ewg.org slash tapwater, environmental working group, and look up your zip code and it will tell you, oh, your zip code is fully compliant with federal regulations, but it's 2000% too much arsenic by, 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 by current science. But like the water industry is like, no, no, no current science. <laughs> Don't update anything, please. They they did they updated the arsenic rules in, in California a, a few years ago, and it threw the whole water industry there. And they were tizzy like, oh, Lord, what do we do? Well, so they're overloaded. And here's the, the number one reason why. 90% of the burden on municipal infrastructure is industry and agriculture. And it's growing, and it gets more toxic. And it's going to get worse because you know what's coming next is deglobalization and all the manufacturing is coming back to America. And we're not ready. We're just not ready. Um, there's a real estate boom going on between in North Texas, between Dallas and the Oklahoma border. It's going so much faster than, than putting in utilities. They're not even trying. So here, to me, the, the solution leapt out to the infrastructure problem, but also the opportunity, which is we're going to have to unburden the, the grid. We're going to have to take businesses off the grid and make them do their own water treatment. And it's called decentralized water. It's going to relieve the central grid because they're not getting the money anyway. And who's going to build a big sewage plant here in, in Pinellas County where it's already overbuilt? So not going to happen. So just relieve the burden. Make the industry and agriculture players do their own water treatment. And Bob's your uncle. Now, what's interesting is they like it. That's that's what I learned, and that's what's pro propelling the boom of our company today, which is they initially are forced to, like we, we get, let's say a brewery is being forced to truck half its water to another county because the local utility won't take it. And so they're forced to do their own thing. But then they go, oh, this isn't bad because number one, I can control the water rates. Do you know that water and sewage rates are inflating at the same rate as college tuition? No, I did not know that at all. No. The, 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 the highest one is hospital services. Next below that is college tuition. And water is right there with it. So it's hurting people, but it's also hurting businesses. And they're like, okay, so if I have a if I do my own water treatment, then I can 
I could control costs, right? Because on the um, water treatment side, I don't have to pay sewage rates. I just, I'm permitted to just, um, you know, dump it into the groundwater, which is perfectly good. And that way it recharges the aquifer. Everything's great. And on the incoming water, since I'm able to recycle, I'm paying less incoming water fees as well for the potable water. And thirdly, there's less um, regulatory noise from the city. I'm on my own. It's great. So those three reasons are big drivers. And that's propelling. The, finally, a change is starting to happen. Um, you know, water companies generally grow at only like 10, 15% a year. We're growing 2x, 3x per year. We're doubling and tripling per year because of this wave. And large companies like PepsiCo has, has um, committed to 80% recycling of their water. Well, you can only recycle if you do it your own treatment. If you send it to the city, it's never coming back. So that's that's the breakthrough. And then we, we had that breakthrough coming into the COVID. <laughs> and then COVID hit. And at the time, this is February 2020, we saw the first crash of uh, the price of crude. And we're like, oh. There's a problem. Wuhan closed for a month. We got a problem. This is before the lockdowns. This is before um, the CARES Act, uh, all this stuff. And we're like, there's going to be a real problem. And people are going to run out of money. And so we came up with the idea of uh, water as a service. Like, we'll install that system in your in, in your business. <clears throat> we'll continue to own that piece of equipment. We'll maintain it. And you just pay by the gallon. And that became water on demand. That was the last piece. So that's today what we have is decentralized water with these compact um, systems called modular water systems combined with the capital solutions. So it kind of works like GM and GM Financial. And because we operate more in the mid-band, you know, 500,000 to $2 million systems, they have to be standardized like hotcakes. They can't be this, we'll take, you know, two years to install your, your system bs that goes on which means that we have a scalable business and we can wrap it up so that's the exciting moment we're in right now and um it, it's starting to we're starting to move the needle yeah that that's very uh a very niche i would say as far as a business model goes i don't know if you thought if you could you know go back in time did you think you'd be working in something like this specific at least i think it's it's very niche in terms of you know, it's something like like your you mentioned earlier. You just turn the faucet on, the water comes on. Like I, I don't think about it really probably on a day to day basis. It's something almost just take for granted the ability that that you have. You know, water that just works. And I'm actually a little nervous to look up my zip code on there. I, I, I not that I like would think it has anything weird about it, but I live in downtown Rochester, Minnesota. I'm hopeful that we're we're pretty good. We're right next to Mayo Clinic. You know, we're treating people for 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 a variety of health conditions. Hopefully, we're doing a pretty good job, but. Yeah, Riggs, I think another another aspect that got me thinking about it is you, your your company is public, right? So you could you could invest in the company's stock. But are are Americans able to invest in water projects like this or are they able to can they invest directly in, you know, a type of water project? Is that possible? Sure. Well, Origin Clear has been a a small public company for 14 years now and it's listed, you can invest in it. Great. But in addition, what you can do is you can become an investor in the in a in these um, bundles of water projects that we put together to make because if I make it free for the brewery owner, 
well, who pays for the machine, right? So what we did was we decided to emulate the um, oil well master limited partnership model, which regular investors can get uh, each of these MLPs is about 60 of them, $300 billion market. It's not niche once it, once it grows. Um, each, they can invest directly in that. And each one of those MLPs is a basket of properties, pipelines, gas, oil, nicely diversified, and they get royalties. And that's a really good model. So we decided to emulate that. And so water on demand is that, and you can invest in what we call water like an oil well. <laughs> and you'll be, um, and what's great about it is, in addition to getting stock, because we do that, stock in the public company, but in addition, you have royalties and a lien uh, capability on the equipment to enforce your royalty, which gives us, makes it asset-backed. So that's a really interesting model. People like it a lot. Um, you know, it's interesting because early stage booms always start at a level that is like, eh. I remember in, in um, 1993, um, there were these weird internet utilities. It was nothing much. It was kind of like, um, I think one, one had a name of, a, of an animal. I mean, it was like these weird things. It was not until Mark Andreessen's browser came along that it just kind of like blew up. Well, that's, so it's very deceiving. You think that that this is nothing, but that's precisely when you want to look at it. If it's not too early, 10 years ago, it would have been too early, but now it's starting to ramp. Back in May, uh, a there was a first unicorn in a long time in the water industry, and they are doing this decentralized water treatment for large companies. They have Merck, they have all you know the big food and beverage companies and so forth. They're very prestigious. They manage, you know, they have fund money behind them. That's great. We're we're the and the problem. It's a good business. There's only so many of those, right? But um, there's many many more of the middle class of water treatment, which is where we like to be. So that that's an indication that water tech is taking off. Um, now, the decentralization thing is interesting because anytime you have um, something goes from centralized to decentralized, you have a huge boom in um, the, the economy of that thing. For example, AT&T broke up and it resulted in all the bell, the baby bells and MCI and uh, VOIP and, the, and eventually the internet, all of it. It, and it all came out of this one just dislocation that occurred. When it, when it's all monopolized and centralized, it doesn't move. It doesn't it doesn't develop. P people like you and me don't get involved because it's a dull job, right? It's like, oh, I'm going to go work for AT and T for 30 years, right? Um, it's not not to denigrate AT and T. They were they they delivered very good tech. But the monopoly concept was was bad, just as a monopoly concept is bad for water. Here's why. In Ireland, water is free for people, for regular people. Why isn't it free here? Well, because 90% of the use is by industry and agriculture. We get those off the grid. Now we can start relieving the burden and servicing people properly. I meant to ask you, Eric, what is your zip code? 55904. Say again. Five five nine zero four. All right, let's take let's take a look at it. Yes, sir. Uh, there's a few subdivisions. Which do you know? Briarwood, Byron, Chester Heights. There's a bunch. Wow. Uh, Rochester. 
I'll take there Rochester. There it is. Yep, Rochester right there. Yep. All right. So um, what I have, nine contaminants detected, 20 total, but nine exceed EW, EWG health guidelines. So what are they? Well, you've got bromodichloromethane, which is 12 times the, um, now the utility, of course, is compliant, 0.725 parts per billion, but EWG has determined is 0.06 parts per billion. So that's 12 times. Haloacetic acid, 28 times. Um, another one is 94 times. So they exceed guidelines, right? Now, there's only nine out of, uh, there's 20 others that, that are fine, you know, toluene, fluoride, dioxane, they're good, right? Um, but that's the problem that we have. So um, these utilities will be able to focus on this more because they'll they'll be servicing the regular people. They'll be unburdened and water rates don't have to keep skyrocketing. There's a serious default rate by people not paying their water bills and being cut off. And now you got to go get your water in a bottle, it gets even worse, right? So this is, to me, a social justice thing. We've got to get industry off this central grid so it goes back to servicing the people. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, decentralization versus centralization. So that got me thinking, you know, in terms of maybe the blockchain or crypto and different ways that, you know, in the finance space and in the asset back space, how we're kind of seeing that more and more and more. And you are actually like you're pioneering some water stable coins, are you not? In, in terms of being able to to have an asset that is backed by water, is that is that something that you're currently working on? Yes. Well, in 2018, when there was things were kind of wild and crazy, I pioneered something called Water Chain, which was a blockchain solution. The problem that we ran into was a very simple one: is that there's no standardized price for water. It varies widely depending on jurisdiction. So, how do you get a market? And it wasn't until we developed what on demand where every single gallon is paid for on these these, these uh, operating contracts. You start multiplying those and then you clone water on demand to different regions. So you have a water on demand. We wouldn't do it, but we'd have a finance partner in Singapore, for example, do it for Singapore, et cetera, Singapore, Malaysia. Um, and you start multiplying these water on demands. And now they're all equivalent because people are paying in the local currency roughly the same amount of money per gallon that they would elsewhere because it's the same base cost it's no longer based on the scarcity of the resource which is why colorado river water you know varies by ten thousand percent depending where you get it from or or whose rights you have that goes away and you get a pretty level playing field and you know, the problem, the reason why there's no international water market or even a national one is because of that problem. If I have a water problem in Northern California, I can't buy options on Singapore water. It's not a, I can't do it. I can't hedge my risk. But under this new model, we can. So that's where we're moving towards. What I felt was important to do was like, let's get our basic business going. Let's, let's proliferate that. Because the blockchain, blockchain can't operate in a vacuum. It's like, well, what are you blockchaining? <laughs> uh, well, I have a cool concept and everybody should like join it and, and we'll do a, we'll go to the moon and everybody gets screwed by like, like Sam Bankman-Fried did. No, this is not, the new model is to create something that has solid backing, is asset-based. For example, we can take these dividend payments and tokenize them. That's a great idea. But for now, 
ACH is just fine. So what, what I'm doing is like, and here's a final issue with tokens is that the SEC doesn't like them. And I'm regularly going to the SEC to get registered for various offerings. And the last thing I need is then to go, what's this token you got? And are you marketing a security? And I was like, you know what? We're just going to hold off for now. And um, and there'll be plenty of time. So I think is there's a future in water stable coins. Um, but as I say, job one is to establish the base business. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's probably a smart play to to be nice with the SEC as of right now with with all the, all the touch points you have with them. But but Riggs, yeah, I think I mean this is all very interesting. I, I think that a lot of people listening probably are thinking like I am in terms of you're you're clearly like disrupting something that is you know, has been stagnant or has been steady for a period of time. And that's exciting for someone hearing that as either an entrepreneur or someone that's aspiring to maybe start a company of their own. Do you have like maybe a blanketed statement of advice for someone that wants to disrupt? Or is there a, you know, is there something that, that a person could maybe look for if they're not certain of what area they want to disrupt in? You know, yours, obviously, yours, you shared your story with us and kind of how you got to where you are. So there's obviously some natural, you know, play to it. And there could be, you know, a combination of hard work and luck that leads you to an opportunity. But yeah, just just kind of as a as a general statement for someone that wants to disrupt, what what would your advice be to that person? Well, I think where I've um given myself a hard time with disruption is where I've gone in to a space without a thorough, infiltrated knowledge of it. And I remember in, in um in the early 80s, I started a business in New York City. Uh, selling uh, business computers, first-generation business computers. Um, and when I, the first one I sold, I did not even know where the on switch was, right? I was like, how complicated could it be? And I found somebody who was interested in buying a computer. And I said, and they go, well, let's see how it works. I'm like, wait, where's where's the, where's the on switch? <laughs> That's so awesome. I don't, I don't advise that. That, that caused me a lot of... I was then learning. I had 12 people on a New York City payroll, Manhattan payroll. It was royally painful. So I learned on the job, but it was it was it proved to be actually one of my toughest learning experiences. I it was I literally gave up on that business and handed it over to a guy who did a great job with it. But um that was a learning experience like, okay, get some familiarity you got to have that. And that's the number one thing. Now, having done that does not mean you have to take a 20-year job with a Fortune 500 corporation. You know, just get to know it. Um, try to apprentice in some way, get up to speed and uh, try things in a microcosm as a side gig or whatever, and then jump into it. At that point, I advise just go for it and do the rest of the learning in the pool. Yeah. And is that, would you say with, that was a example of the mistake-based marketing initially, like kind of that learning from that, that failure, so to speak, before, you know, you developed, you know, your skill set to, to be able to, to get to the next step. I mean, if you, if you didn't know where the on switch was that time, that certainly wasn't going to be probably a mistake that you were going to make again in the future. You were going to, you were going to have, have done your research, right? Is that, is that kind well, of mistake-based a, a, marketing is just conscious, consciously trying things out in the market and presumably, you know, what the heck you're doing. Right back then, like, well, let me tell you the reason why I gave up on that business was again because of a lack of really being in the business deeply. Because of what I didn't realize was I was creating 
first time users, business users of computers. And it was incredibly tough, hard work, et cetera. Not really profitable. But what I didn't realize is there was a life cycle of supporting these people for 20 years that is incredibly rich. And that's what my that my buddy Juan, he took, took took this over and he made it that business. To this day, he has clients that I that we opened together in the 80s in New York City. That's an incredible amount of annuity. And that's what I didn't fully realize. So that's why it's so important to have really good, um, you know, really embed yourself in the industry. I think it's super important. Yeah. And building that skill set and, and probably finding out at the at the same time what is you know, what is igniting you? What is, what is fulfilling you or fueling your, you know, passion, so to speak, to, to want to work more on those things. So obviously entrepreneurship has been a big piece of that for you for the extended period of time and, and leadership as well. And you mentioned pre-interview that, you know, you're getting ready to, to even start your own podcast. So that's extremely exciting and wish you the best of luck on that. And, and Riggs, as we, as we kind of close down, just one last question for you. Is there is there a myth about entrepreneurship that you want to debunk on the podcast today? Something that that maybe is widely believed to be true, but you have found out this is not the case, and you want to make sure that people do not, uh, you know, fall victim to that false belief. Well, I think the biggest myth out there that and it prevents people in corporate America from taking to making the jump, even if they're frustrated, and that is that it's the uncertainty. Right? Um, I was listening to. Um, uh, an interview of Matt Taibbi on Joe Rogan, and and he said, "I'm being paid many times what I was paid at Rolling Stone, many times, because he's he's on Substack and it's got this great Substack did a great disruption of the publishing space, and so he's doing really really well. So it's it's it is not impossible. I have a nephew who he cracked the code on Amazon selling. He, he's freaking brilliant. It's not something I would do because it's not what I am, but he did it. And it's, this stuff is doable. It, it's it's hard to find an, a, a niche and something you love and get some traction in it, but it's not as hard or as, or as risky as people think to develop the business and get into revenue. Very sound advice. Really appreciate hearing that. That does uh, you know kind of ignite my fire, so to speak, as we close this episode. And Rick Zuckerberry, if someone wants to reach out to you and learn more, what's the best way for them to contact you? Well, they should sign up for the uh, CEO briefing that I do every Thursday. So go to originclear.com. You'll get uh, a pop-up to invite you to my CEO briefings. We are the most transparent public company in America, I like to say. And if you're interested in, in investing as um, an accredited investor, go to the top right, green button, invest now. And you'll get to speak to the founder of Water on Demand, uh, Ken Berenger, who's a brilliant guy. So I recommend that if people are interested. We do crowdfundings occasionally for people who are not accredited. So get on the list, join my briefings. I think you'll enjoy it. That sounds perfect. We'll have that all tagged in the show notes. And it just dawned on me how, how appropriate the name of the company is, Origin Clear. You're dealing with water. You're also extremely transparent and water is transparent. So it's it's all coming together here at the end, Rig. So Again, can't thank you enough for being a guest on the podcast today. We'll look forward to keeping up with you in the future and, and best of luck with everything, sir. Eric, it was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Keep up the good work, okay? Thank you, sir. You too.